Morning. Everybody awake? That's good. Did he get on to you about 9.30? Half of y'all weren't in here. That's why. <laughs> 9.30 was uh, crazy. It was whatever. Okay. Um, my name is Derek. Welcome to uh, Christian Church Buckhead. If you're a first-time guest with us, obviously, uh, thanks for coming. And uh, we're going to be in James chapter 3 today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, just to bring you up to speed on just some things we've been saying each week about this letter, we've been moving through it um, this month. It'll take all month to get through it, uh, five Sundays uh, to deal with some of the things in there. And James is an extraordinary uh, book of the Bible. It's written from this, uh, it's a genre called wisdom writings. And wisdom writings in the scriptures, such as Proverbs and so on, they don't really have this continuous theme. There's not like this one thing it's trying to get across. Uh, it's just a lot of various teachings. Uh, but the main thing that wisdom literature is concerned with is action. It doesn't really care so much about what you believe because your beliefs are assumed in the text. So when you're reading a, a letter like James, it just assumes that you're on the same page in terms of your beliefs. That's why you hear a lot uh, in a letter like James, he'll say things like, well, you say you believe this, but make sure that your faith is showing that in action. So this action thing is very, very, uh, it repeats itself quite a bit in writings like that. And so when you're reading, it also makes it kind of easy, easier to memorize. James is a, is a book of the Bible that many people go, go for and try to memorize. It is a little bit easier that way because it's just in chunks that aren't necessarily related, and you can kind of memorize the chunks, and so uh, that's, that's pretty cool. But, uh, but at, the, at the end of the day, it's not... If you're looking for one theme, you're not going to find it. But what you will find is this push, this challenge to make sure that your beliefs are connected uh, to action, that there's not really any space between those two things, but that uh, you're always showing what you believe in your life. Does that make sense? And there, is, there are a couple of things that come up often in the letter, and one of them is this divine call that the Bible puts on everybody's life to be people of compassion. And uh, it's not just one passage in the book of James. It's not just a verse here or there, but it is a repeated theme, you know. So if there is something to lean on in this letter, it might just be this topic of what it means to be a compassionate person. Now, compassion in the Bible is such an interesting thing. It's always, almost always connected with a reaction that someone has uh, to what they've seen in the lives of other people. So compassion comes from when we see uh, people typically dealing with difficulty, they're going through suffering, they're going through difficult times in their lives, and compassion is something that is a response to what, uh, to what we see. It is different than like when we see people going through difficulty, it's different, like we're not, it's not a judgment on them, we don't uh, necessarily make judgment calls on their character. We don't, uh, we don't default to the always simplistic conclusion that, well, you know, well, she had, a, she had that coming, right? I mean, like, who couldn't have guessed that that would happen to her or him because of her life or his life? So compassion doesn't even go there. Compassion is this really deeply rooted physical response almost to the pain and the suffering of other people. It's rooted in feeling what the other person is going through, and so this has a lot to do with uh, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself is partly the solution to that difficult sort of riddle almost, is finding yourself in your neighbor, like seeing yourself 
in their uh, shoes and their life situations and so on. So James is dealing with this every time, he, every time he brings forth a different group of people that God's people are called to have compassion for uh, and with. And the other thing about compassion uh, is that it is not an option. I mean, sadly enough, it is not an option for the Christian. It is a, it is a command on all of our lives. It doesn't exist on a list of things that maybe I'm gifted at and maybe I'm not gifted at. You know, we do that. Like we say, well, I'm definitely administrative, but I'm not compassionate, which those two definitely go together. But like, I'm de- I'm, I, I, I don't have the gift of mercy, but I can teach or something like that. It's, that's not on the list. It's compassion is to be the base character for all of us. And so as we're engaging uh, with this, that's just something we need to remember. Notice what the writer of Psalm 103 uh, says. This is beautiful. The Lord is what? Merciful. The word there is rakuim. It means compassionate. It's this like, it's this word that has to do with the bowels of a person. Like the, they feel it in their stomach. And the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That word for steadfast is the word hesed. And it's this word that appears in the scriptures a lot in the Old Testament mainly because it's a Hebrew word. But it appears in the Old Testament quite a bit. And it's this love that's based on covenant, not on your performance. And so God has that kind of love for all people. And out of that kind of love is a compassion, a mercy, a mercy of sorts that none of us can fully understand. And so we are called to be compassionate people not just because that's a good thing to be, but because we are also made in the likeness of God. Genesis says that we're made in his image, and we carry part of that with us, and compassion is a part of that. And uh, so when we read things like the Lord is compassionate or merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that's not just something we're thankful for, but it's something we also shoot for uh, in our lives. So one more thing of introduction here, and then we'll get into our chapter today. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, the first two weeks of this, um, you know, trek through the book of James, we've, we've looked at two different groups of people that James says, listen, you, you should have compassion for these kinds of people. The first were what we just labeled the lonely, and he dealt with, uh, he challenged us to sort of have this compassion for the orphans and the widows in the world. And we have those people in our midst. We have those people in our church family, but we also have those people that live in our buildings. We have those people that are, live in our city Uh, and all over the world. And so the church, he says, is called to have compassion for the orphans and the widows. And then last week, uh, compassion for the poor, those who don't have, those who have less than us, and so on. And like, particularly those who have are supposed to really be compassionate towards those who don't. And so not just as individuals, but as a church, making sure that the church congregation, the family is aligning itself with ways of bringing and means of bringing restoration to those who are poor. And so we talked about that. But all of those really, at the end of the day, are quite easy for us to agree with. Like, yeah, we should have compassion for people who have lost loved ones or who are without families. Or we should certainly have compassion on those who don't have the things that they need. They're poor in the eyes of the world or whatever. All that's very, very easy for us. I mean, it's one thing to feel compassion for those who are hurting because we can all relate in some sense, even if it's just in the future tense. Like, I can see myself in that situation one day. We can kind of relate in that, in that aspect. But it's another thing to feel compassion for those who hurt us. It's a whole different ballgame to also feel compassion for people that we just don't really like all that much. 
your enemies, perhaps, or maybe just the people that you despise. And so today's sermon is a really like uplifting text. It's about having compassion for people that you really just despise. Are you excited about that? (laughs) I assume we're all on the same page. Like, I hope that I'm not the only one in here that has people in my life that I'm like, you know what, really, if I never saw them again, I mean, you're with me on that. We all have those people. But I want us to think a little bit uh, more general than that, too, where it's not just people in our lives, but just people in our world that we see, different cultures, different kinds of people, different people with different, you know, perspectives on faith and belief and life, like seeing the world with compassion, particularly the groups of people that maybe we just despise. We have nothing in our heart that wants to hang out with them or be around them. That's where we're headed today, and uh, so just sort of buckle in. James 3, uh, here's how it's going to work. The scripture was read earlier, and there's this middle section where James does these uh, metaphorical illustrations about the power of speech, uh, the tongue that's in our mouth, and how it makes words, and so on. We're not going to deal with that because they're just, you know, illustrations to sort of get to the main thing. But the main thing exists in verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 10, and that's what we're going to do today. So we'll start with verse 1. James says, not many of you should become teachers, he says, for you know that we who teach will be judged uh, with greater strictness. So he starts with this real tight angle on the office of teaching. He starts with this like very narrow description uh, of the kind of person that he's talking to. So in a general sense, related to the word teacher, this, you know, let me just sort of paint it this way. If you're anyone in your career, in your life, that you stand up and instruct people, and you challenge people, and you inspire people, and maybe even try to shape them a little bit with your words, and if you're a teacher of any kind, like where you stand up and impart what you know, in hopes that it transforms the people in front of you. And that could be just in your business world or whatever, but also in the church. But let's just stick with just sort of the outside of the church situation here. Whenever you're teaching and instructing, you are, just by the very nature of your position, subject to criticism. Critique, judgment, fact-checking, these little in-run meetings that happen after you're gone uh, between the people who are at your seminar or whatever. I mean, that's the basics of what it means to be a teacher being judged more strictly. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, if you ever have the feeling of after you've taught something or shared something or even given counsel and you go home and you start to think, did I say the right things? That's what it means to be a teacher. That's what it means to instruct. Like, you're very, if you're never nervous about what you've said, that's, that's a bad thing. But you're always self-assessing. You're always like, did I say that right? Did they understand? Did I get it across clear enough? And so that makes sense to us. Like if you're a teacher, then you will be judged with greater strictness simply because you are at least assuming the role of the expert. But in the tightest sense, James is talking about people like me. People who stand up on the stage or in front of the congregation and teach Now, that may, in your mind, take you off the hook. Like, okay, cool, move to verse 2. But in the tightest sense, James is saying, okay, those who teach, and maybe he's saying, too, like, not many of you should want to be teachers because that would just be chaos in a local church. Like, we're all teachers. We're all chiefs, right? But but in in the tightest sense here, he is speaking about people who teach the Word of God. But let me just open this up a little bit. If anybody claims a relationship with Jesus, and 
This is very important. That relationship is one that is marked and defined by God's grace. So if you claim that relationship, whenever you speak to others about it, whenever you speak to anyone about your faith, whether it's in counsel with them or over the phone or at Starbucks or in a small group and some back and forth email exchange over a problem they may, may be dealing with and you're giving spiritual advice, you're speaking from the gospel, you're talking about God, you're saying, hey, maybe you should do this or I'll pray with you about this. If you are speaking to anyone about your faith, you are in those moments a teacher. You are teaching. You are instructing. Does that make sense? So we look at verse 1 and we say, cool, that's about the preacher. But if you open it up a little bit, anyone who speaks about their faith in the hopes that they may help the other person, uh, reshape the other person, inspire the other person to change, you're teaching, you're instructing. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Now look at this verse for a moment. I want to just break something down for you. The word all in the scriptures typically means all. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. So when James says, hey, not many of you should be teachers, and we all sort of say, man, that's that's cool. I'm, I'm down with that. Then he comes in with verse 2 and says, but you know what? All of us stumble. And this word stumble appears a lot in James. I mean, this is kind of a repeating problem. We're stumbling. We're tripping. We're not smooth. And so he says, we all stumble. And then he amplifies that with the topic at hand. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect. He's perfect. And I like the sentiment there. He's like saying, if I could just control what I say... I would be perfect. Now, honestly, I mean, quick survey. Does anyone ever get in trouble with what they say? Anyone in here? I mean, do you ever wish that you could just take it back or you could dig yourself out of the things that you've said? I mean, I do that in my life. It's called preaching. <laughs> there are many, many Sundays I walk off this thing. I, I, get, I get, you know, out of the building and I think, oh my gosh, I wish I could just rewind and like make it all go away, right? But I can't. Like once you speak... It's done. You've said it. It's open for critique. It's open for judgment. You have to learn to be comfortable with that and, uh, and hope that everyone else is grace, gracious, right? But this is what James is saying. Like everybody, nobody is perfect in their speech. We all stumble in that. Now, let me say this before we get to the real heart of this passage. This passage is not simply about being nice with our words, or saying things that don't get us into trouble with people. It's much more involved than that. Like in verses 9 and 10, which we'll look at in a moment, it, it opens up this darker corner of what James is really getting at. I mean, if this were just about Hey, look, be encouraging with what you say. Be uplifting with what you say. Don't tear down, but build up. I mean, all these things, like, we understand that. And maybe we get better at that through time. I'm not so sure. I think we just find the right person to say the same old things to. But maybe we do control what we say around certain people better because of a text like this. But this text isn't really about that. I wish it were that easy, but it's it's much more difficult. 
And what you'll see in verses 9 and 10, I just want to give away the whole thing right here so that we can listen to that end as we go through it. But essentially what James will say to the church, and that's us today, that words of judgment have no place in the speech of a Christian. Period. Let me say it again, that words of judgment have no place in the speech of the Christian. Now let me say what this doesn't mean so that you don't confuse the two. Within the Christian community, and Paul talks about this enough in the Scriptures, we are called to hold one another accountable, to pull our friends aside and say, hey, listen, the behavior, the attitude, the whole thing needs to get pulled back in. I mean, we are called to do that with one another, but the Scriptures are frighteningly clear about we are not called to do that with the world. Off limits. It's not our position. It's not our role. It's not something we've been given the freedom to do. Notice what James says in verse 9. With it, talking about the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we what? We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now that's pretty heavy. From the same mouth, he says, come blessing and cursing. And then he says, these things ought not so now let me break this down because what James does here is pretty extraordinary. He gives us two extremes of how we speak, blessing and cursing. Now that may not seem like a lot to us, but when he's writing these down, this is the, this is the, the major extremes in how we think about people and speak about people. We bless and we curse. Now this is not about profanity, so just get that out of your mind. I mean, you probably shouldn't do that either when you're talking about people, but it's not about that. You'll see in a moment. Blessing God and others for James is the highest form of speech. So to pronounce a blessing on someone or something is a profound statement about how you feel about that person. And so James begins with God. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father. And what does that mean? It simply means like just some examples when we sing songs that tell, we're telling God of his great mercy and his love and his graciousness and so on. Like, it's an act of thanking him for who he is, but it's also this announcement that we're making with our prayers, perhaps, or our songs, or just our speech, that we are announcing God's place in the world, that he's above us, that he's above everything, that he's through all, above all, and that we are receivers of his grace. We are not producers of his grace. And when we bless God, we're saying not just thank you for that, but we are also like attributing all that to him. Everything is from him. And so, like, you get that. I mean, again, we could talk about that for for days, but like James is saying, look, with it we bless God. So he's talking to the church, not to an individual, although we make up the church, but he's speaking to the church in general, and this makes great sense because in our gatherings, that's what we do. We bless God with our prayers, with our songs, with our being together, with the communion, with everything that we do. We are blessing God with the things that we say as a congregation, right? And then he moves to the other end of the, the other extreme. And instead of talking about God, like with it we bless God, he moves it to say we also curse men or people who have been made in the likeness of God. So it's a congruency issue in James's mind here that James then turns to us and says, hey, look, those who are blessing God are also cursing people. Not God, but people. And then the moment that feels less than, he says, who are made in the likeness of God. So, like, it's just really hard to escape the, you know, the depth of what he's saying. 
So we're blessing God, attributing a profound worth to him, and then we are cursing men. Here's what the word curse is in the Greek, and it means to doom or to condemn. Does that make sense? To curse someone is not to call them a word, but it is to essentially render their standing before God. It is to determine where they stand in God's presence. To judge someone is to decide on your own initiative where this person stands with God. Now, was this happening in the early Christian communities? It seems so, because again, James is writing this not to one church or one individual, but to many churches. So it wasn't just an isolated issue, but a cross-congregational issue. People, teachers perhaps like me, were spitting a great game about the goodness and the grace of God, while at the same time condemning people to hell. Saying about certain groups of people, I hope they burn in hell, or they deserve hell. They are so far outside of God's grace. And what James is saying here is that when Christians say such things, they have crossed a line into a place where they were never invited to be. Does that make sense? So this isn't just about, oh, I pray a good game and I don't like my neighbor. Or I say that they're, you know, I I have a description for them. To curse someone is to determine their standing with God. A place and a posture that we were never invited to be. The teaching is very clear. If we confess this relationship with Jesus, again, one that is marked and defined by God's grace, and it depends on God's grace, and then we turn and we condemn people in the place of God, something we were never given the right or freedom to do, that's just not our role. And so this passage, James 3, and it may be a tired passage for you because you've read it a hundred times, but I wish that it were just about being nice. But it's far deeper than that. It's about staying out of God's role. Whatever, whatever it is that we think we have the freedom to do, with our words in terms of where people stand with God, we've got to back up from that. We've got to check that, release that. I love what John Golden Gay says. The difference between God and us is that he never thinks he's us. <laughs> never. Is that good? And the always risky uh, Anne Lamott, it's on your bulletin, I think, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. little less laughter there because that one hits home, right? Like, okay. Does this make sense? I mean, James is saying within the Christian community, this should not exist. Among each other, fine. Call each other into accountability. But to look at a certain culture, a certain people, and determine where they are. And there's a difference between what you're thinking being true and what you're saying being off limits. That's okay. That's okay. It may be that what, it it may be truth, but it's not ours to announce. That's what he's saying. That's God's game. That's God's role. 
And the church is to become a place of blessing, not cursing. A place of uplifting the gospel and not determining who it impacts. What does Jesus say about this very teaching? I think what he says is quite extraordinary. He says, do not give dogs what is holy. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that text. No booing because of the shirt he's wearing, but um, hey, a win's a win, you know? (laughs) I think next week we play a real team, but um, (laughs) I still say we like you guys care. Uh, This room's full of tech kids and uh, other places. Um, But have you ever seen this teaching before? This is a strange thing. I mean, Jesus says, oh, and don't give dogs what is holy, like, okay. Now you can do like, you know, you can do the hardcore exegesis and just be like, okay, this, I mean, dogs in the ancient world are not like they are today. We have them as pets. They were seen as scavengers. They were terrible, blah, 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 blah. Of course you wouldn't give a dog anything except a kick in the back or something like that. Okay, I get that. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Like dogs are terrible. Don't give these terrible people what is holy. Is that what he's talking about? Because it sure is sort of, Strange. The next thing he says, actually, which we don't have on the screen for you, but is don't throw pearls at pigs. So this is a pretty profound teaching, like don't give this dog what is holy. So why don't we just like, we'll give, we'll give the guy the Bible. There you go, buddy. There you go. What, what is he doing with that? Nothing. I mean, he might be thinking, hey, it looks like a newspaper. But you know why he doesn't do anything with it? Besides the fact that he's a dog? Because he doesn't understand it. It's just not in his language. He's not bought into that. You don't give a dog something like that because he doesn't know what to do with it. He'll just tear it up. He'll go to the bathroom on it. He'll disrespect it, which ends up just making the guy who gave it to him matter. Right? It just makes the guy who gave the person who can't really understand that thing, it just makes that person more upset because it's like, well, I gave you that, but you didn't respect it. You just trampled it. And the visual of throwing pearls at pigs, I mean, just the things bouncing off the pig, like he doesn't know what's happening. Like it's just, it's useless. It doesn't do any good. And I think about the church throughout history, like has, has condemnation ever worked for the church? Not to my knowledge. Not to my historical understanding of the last 2,000 years hasn't made a bit of difference. What does Jesus say before this? Maybe this will help. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Kind of humorous. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. 
you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then the very next thing he says is, do not give dogs what is holy. It's a text about judging, about condemning, about determining someone's stance before God. And we don't waste our time giving those things to those whom they don't have any impact on anyway. What we think we're doing is effective. Like it's making an impact on someone. And we fall, like the guy on the corner with the placard who's saying God hates and you just fill in the blank. Or turn or burn. Right? What good is that doing? It's not doing any good. And in fact, what Jesus says is more frightening. When you're doing that, you're actually passing judgment on yourself. Don't judge like that or you'll be judged like that. Right? So passing, like what we think we're doing is passing due judgment on people for whatever the reason may be when we are in fact doing that to ourselves, Jesus says. It is not our place to even think about our enemies standing with God. We're not even given the freedom to suggest it. Like the discipline of the Christian is to just stay away from it. To allow that to be God's role and not mine. In Romans 12, uh, Paul has a lengthy text about this very thing. And we'll just put the very first verse up there and I'll read the rest for you. But he says, bless those who persecute you and do not what? Curse them. So this isn't just isolated to James. I mean, this is throughout. Bless those who persecute you. This is the very opposite of what James is saying, isn't it? And do not curse them. Let me read the rest. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Like just when you think this was a soft sermon, Paul says, no, no, no. What is true doesn't necessarily mean that we say it. That's God's position. And he says, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a pretty funny picture. When you do good to someone who hates you, doesn't it frustrate them? It's like, you don't think that's funny. Okay, so like, (laughs) imagine your boss or something with hot coals on their head. It's a good picture, isn't it? I mean, that's what he's saying here. Like, when when you're doing good to those who hate you, when you're serving your enemy, it frustrates them. It's painful for them. And then in verse 21, he closes, with this, do not be overcome by evil. Such a powerful, don't let that overcome you, but overcome evil with good. So whatever is evil in the world in your eyes, and obviously in the eyes of Scripture, don't overcome that with more of the same, but overcome that with good. Overcome that with things that are blessings. Jesus said it this way, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Now that, again, that may be a tired verse for you, but it is at the end of the day, the heart of what James is speaking of here. We bless God with our words, but we sometimes curse people. We condemn people when we have no right to do so. And the instruction about our enemies from Jesus himself is that we love them and that we pray for them. And then Paul amplifies that saying, and we serve them. We do good to them. And I would submit to you that that's actually a freedom thing. Because all that energy we spend in judgment now is gone. Like that just gets pushed back to God. And we're just free to be a blessing. We're free to love. We're free to pray for those who persecute us. In his Weight of Glory lectures, C.S. Lewis says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Just simply saying, look, everybody you meet is crafted in God's likeness. They are the image of God, the imago Dei. When you're talking with someone, enemy or friend, they carry the likeness of the Creator, and they are loved by Him. And it is our role not to curse them, not to condemn them, but to offer blessing to them. And as we participate in the communion each and every week, as we all walk to these various tables today, I want us to remember that it's the thing that the tables represent that levels the room. They are reminders of God's grace and mercy and that by those things we are forgiven and redeemed and allowed to participate in his grace. It is his doing that we are together, not our own. As Paul says in Ephesians, it's, it's not by works that we have been saved, but by his grace. And as we eat the bread, a reminder of Jesus' life, and we drink the cup, a dark reminder of his death, I just wanted to bind us together in one spirit of forgiveness and a reminder that we are all consumers of God's grace. And that let this time over the next few moments announce that we have that same hope for the world, all people, all nations. Amen? Let me pray and then you can make your way to one of the tables for communion. God, thank you for um, your grace and mercy, and thank you for your love for us. God, we pray a, a very specific prayer today that as a congregation, that you will free us, uh, if it exists here, that you will free us um, the temptation to make judgment calls on where people stand with you. And hopefully, God, that what that will do is that you will, you will fill us with an alternative energy to bless and to be people of blessing, not cursing, not condemning. And God, we just return that to you. We return that, that role to you. And God, we pray that your grace and mercy finds the whole world. And give us the strength to do our part, to be your hands and feet in every relationship. 
with our neighbors in our buildings, the people we work with, and God, those that we don't know, but we just have a real strong distaste for. God, change our hearts to reflect yours. And it's in your name that we pray as we take this communion together, that you remind us of those things and of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.